If you look at like technology, there's great examples of that. People talk about Apple being this innovative powerhouse and they are, but I would argue that mo the majority of their success has to do with their marketing. There was MP3 players before the iPod. There was tablets before the iPad. There was a smartphone before the iPhone. They just didn't market it well at all. They couldn't articulate to the end user why their product met their needs better than other things in the marketplace. And Apple came along and basically, now it was a better product, but they also were able to articulate it really well in their marketing and then their products just took off. Hey Rob, great to see you. Thanks for coming on the show. Ah, gladly. Thanks for the invite. Awesome. Hey mate, let's go back to your early years. What sparked your interest and got you into marketing in the first place? When I started my career, I, I was in purchasing. I bought chemicals, right? And the chemicals went into soaps and detergents. And what's really interesting is that most detergents are about 90% the same. In the US, it's tied to your bold solo dash era. And they could cost two times as much. They could have three times the market share and the product was 90% the same. And what I realized by working with my cross-functional counterparts in marketing, which they call brand management at Procter & Gamble, is it really came down to how they named the product, how they priced it, where they got distribution, and most importantly, what was the customer need that they were trying to solve? Was your need that you wanted to get out stains? Was your need that you wanted to have the whitest clothes? Was it that you didn't want your clothes to fade? And just by understanding that need, and then being able to market that your product did it better than other people, you could have huge sales. And even though the product really wasn't that different. And if you look at like technology, there's great examples of that. People talk about Apple being this innovative powerhouse and they are, but I would argue that mo the majority of their success has to do with their marketing. There was MP3 players before the iPod. There was tablets before the iPad. There was a smartphone before the iPhone. It, they just didn't market it at well at all. They couldn't articulate to the end user why their product met their needs better than other things in the marketplace. And Apple came along and basically, now it was a better product, but they also were able to articulate it really well in their marketing and then their products just took off. Strongly disagree with your whole better product comment. And I remain that person with all the non-Apple branded MP3s. <laughs> they had so, a good product, but oftentimes they were not the first to market. True. And I did actually have an iPhone back in the day when it first came out because I wanted to be cruel like everyone else. <laughs> Never had another one since. Hey, can you see all of that at, at Procter & Gamble? What was your first marketing role? My first marketing role? I was the assistant brand manager on Oil Valet, which was body lotion, face lotion for yeah. mature women. Notice I didn't say old. You say mature. <laughs> Wait, that's marketing. <clears throat> well, they took the good things about the brand, which was moisturization, and they rolled out body wash, which back, this is way back in the 90s, there hadn't been an innovation on cleansing products in 100 years. You bought bar soap and you cleaned your body, and the only difference was how it smelled. And someone came up with the idea of making it into a liquid form and how it was going to make your skin softer and that was a need that women had, and then they marketed to it using a brand that people already believed would do that, and it took off. 
Hey Rob, so how does one go from being a brand marketing manager to a CMO of a giant global business? What were some of the pivotal points in your career that kind of put you on that spot? Yeah. Well, I think left out king of the soap, like the brand management <laughs> king of soap. Oh, the detergent and everything yeah. else that came in the middle. When you yeah. can have longer conversations with your mother about your skincare regimen. <laughs> I remember Olay with the white tub and the black lid. But uh, Ricky, he uses it still to this day. Ricky's 62. You don't know that. <laughs> I've got it right here. Um, I, uh, I was always early, an early tech adopter. I, I, was, I remember having an argument with my, my boss that we needed a website for Oil Valet. And she didn't understand why. She thought it was a lark. But I was, was always an early tech adopter. I, I enjoyed technology. And so I wanted to go work in tech. And the one thing that, that really stuck with me from my early years of marketing was find big unmet customer needs that your product can solve better than others. And when I went out to Silicon Valley during the first internet bubble in 2000, what people would talk to me about is how they were going to be first to market, how much burn rate they had, why their widget was going to be faster. And I would say, what's the customer? And most of them didn't know, couldn't tell me. They would just be like, we're going to be the first ones to mail dog food to your house. Is that a problem? Um, are you, can we be competitive? Actually, it's going to cost more to ship the dog food than the dog food costs. Okay. Then you don't have a value prop. And so I ended up going to work for Intuit. And the reason I went to them is they had a very similar mindset. Find big unmet customer needs that are technology solves better than others. And they added a third one and you have a competitive advantage, a durable competitive advantage, preferably. And that resonated with me. So I said, hey, I'll go work for them for two or three years. I ended up staying for 20. But I, I came on as a, as a senior marketing manager. I was like one I think I was one level above entry level working on spamming people's email with trying to get them to buy QuickBooks desktop disks. And our number one place that we sold product was large box stores like Costco and Sam's and the old uh, business stores like Staples. And we sold millions and millions of boxes with a CD. During the course of the period, how much has the marketing actually changed, Rob? What were some of the channels that started working when you first joined the brand and from the time you actually left? Yeah. Early on, it was retail was king because that's where you went to buy software. That's where you bought Microsoft, mm -hmm. where you bought Adobe, where you bought the Intuit products, TurboTax, all that. But you also had direct sales, right? Because as people would become customers, they would be repeat purchasers. Accountants would tell them to call and ask questions. Support actually was a sales channel in many ways because people call with questions about the product. And then you know, mm -hmm. the way you solved their product was to upgrade them or to put them on other services. So it was retail and direct sales. And then with the growth of the internet and search, then online advertising really became the number one place to sell to consumers and small businesses. When you get into mid-market and enterprise, it's a different game. But consumers and small businesses, and even to some extent with mid-market, well, it's digital marketing. People research what they're going to buy, whether they look at a pay-per-click uh, result, an SEO result, a digital ad. Maybe they get targeted in social and see a, a short clip. That became the main place that you would drive uh, leads to your site. 
But then and once you got to your site, you had to make the decision. Were you going to be a product-led growth company where it was all product? Were you going to make them call sales because you were a more expensive product that had a more complex selling cycle and more complex pricing? Or were you going to do a hybrid? I worked in all one business that was completely product-led and then another business that was a hybrid where it was like 70% self-serve and 30% they would pick up the phone and talk to inside sales. Interesting. You mentioned a lot about sales there, Rob. Companies that we often speak to, even in the early stage, a lot of them actually struggle with this alignment in sales and marketing because marketing's obviously to your point, has changed dramatically in the mm. last 10, 20 years, right? They've come a long way with sales in many organizations is still stuck in the 50s. It's very much the old school playbook, right? Yeah. What are some of the challenges that you've come across when it comes to alignment in the two functions and what have you been able to do to overcome those? Yeah. A lot of times the, just the, the problem with alignment is, is that they're solving for different things. Marketers might be thinking about what's our brand image, what's our messaging, how many clicks do I get, what's our social likes, which maybe aren't bad, but I'd want to know how does that help you actually sell more product, right? And then you have the salespeople who are like, I need leads. I need good leads. I need leads I can close. I need leads that close and actually buy a lot of product. Don't buy our cheapest product. And even if they are getting leads, maybe it's not the best leads. I'm a big fan of first, you have to have a company strategy and everybody gets behind that company strategy. And who's your target customer? What do you, what, again, what's your problem? What are you trying to solve? So who's your target customer? What's your problem? How are you solving that with the product? How are you solving that with your messaging, the marketing? How are you explaining that to your customers? And therefore, when they show up to sales, you're getting the right people to talk to sales. So a clear company strategy is very important company vision. And then when you go down to declaring your strategy and your principal or uh, priorities for the year, I think marketing and sales have to do it together. They can't do it in a silo. They have to sit down and say, all right, what did we learn last year? What are we trying to achieve this year? How do we do this together? And then importantly, the success metrics. Are we going to measure MQLs, SQLs, or is it conversion rates? Maybe we're actually not trying to grow the number of leads. We're just trying to get to better leads that convert at a higher rate. And... Unless you have alignment on those, the strategy and the success metrics, I think you end up having people that are going to be solving for the wrong things. I think you've raised two awesome points there. One metrics, one people. I'll take people. Ricky, you take metrics because that's how it generally rolls out between us. But I, I was always a very strong believer in making sure your, your sales leader and your marketing leader are super aligned because if they're not building stuff together, then it will always, from my experience, devolve into a he said, she said, or she said, he said, depending on which side they're sitting on, or he or she. But the point yeah. being, it's just, it's a, it's my word versus your word. I did heaps of leads come in. All the leads are crap. I didn't bring any leads, but the ones you bought were, were still crap. Well, they're amazing, but I need more. What if, if they're not aligned, then all you ever get is back and forward. Over the years, in the different roles you've been in, what really good things have you seen to help drive that alignment? And I know company strategy, getting that, having a CEO who's driving, this is what we're achieving is a part of that. But there's a lot of stuff I, I think I've seen and, and I know I've talked to you about that the sales and marketing leader can do that that helps build some alignment. Yeah. So the the first one is strategy. You said that. The second one can be is what do you what is their leader doing to set expectations, right? I literally had a, a general manager. If I walked into the room as the head of marketing and started to propose actions that required the sales team to do work, he would look around and be like, Where's the sales leader? And I'm like, they're not here. And he said, well, we're not going to have the conversation. Like, I, I talked to the sales leader. He's like, yeah, unless they're here, I, I don't know if you guys are aligned or not. 
So yeah. leadership can set expectations and say, hey, I'm expecting you guys to work together. And they reinforce that process uh, and dashboards. So each week we're going to look at a dashboard and it's going to include the top of the funnel and the bottom of the funnel. We're going to have sales and marketing on in the meeting together. We're going to look at all of the results, the, the metrics, right? That's another way. So process, so strategy, expectation setting by the manager, process. Another one is org structure. A lot of people like CROs. We have one person who's in charge of marketing and sales. Then you've got one throat to choke or one back to pat, depending on how positive or negative you are. Right? That's another way. And then the last one is compensation. You can set it up so that the compensation is shared and there is to everybody's joint benefit to get to the best outcome between the two functions. I've got two leading questions from there, Rob. First one being... Metrics you mentioned is critical, right? Or crucial to success of an organization. So if you, let's say you're a $5 million ARR business with hopes of getting to 50 million in whatnot, five years, where should I start? What metrics right now as a CEO and a leader should I be looking at? If you're 5 million, you probably don't have a lot of extra cash. I start with the free stuff. How's your PR? How's your SEO rankings? What are you doing with social? Are you going to events where you can find influencers who can sell for you? Because those are usually low investment. Get your product in front of influencers who can talk about your product for you. Get it in reviews. Because those are all things that aren't a lot of cash that can get you traffic to your site. Then the second one would be is being really clear on your value proposition on your site because you can do all that work, you can make your SEO great and you get someone review you and then someone comes to your site and you don't stand out versus your competition. You look like every other field service management, time tracking, accounting software, you name it, then they're not going to take the time or energy to sign up for a trial and start using your product. Yeah. Solid tips. And the second question I was going to ask Rob, how much does brand matter? So, because if they all look the same, to your point, should the name be obvious like Salesforce so everyone gets to know what you're doing? Or can it be like Apple where no uh, one has an clue what it's meant to be? Well, the first thing I'd say is I think brand has gotten a negative connotation, especially mm -hmm. in tech. Because you start talking about brand, which I hear people start talking about is like, what should our colors be? And what font should we use? And hey, let's do a Super Bowl ad. That's, yeah, if you look at a brand strategy is saying, who's your target customer? What's their problem? How are you going to solve that problem? And so I have, I coach marketers, like, don't talk about brand strategy. Talk about your demand generation strategy. Because at the end of the day, if it doesn't generate demand, then why do it? If you think the name is going to generate demand, great. If you think a color, because I literally was in a conversation about this, they, like, they did an analysis and they're like, there's five major players in this industry and four of them use the color green. And they're like, maybe, and their color was green. And they're like, maybe we should change our color. I was like, that's a good idea. That's actually a valid conversation about why you should change your color. Yeah. Having a conversation about, I think blue is more approachable than red. You know what? I don't... I, Explain to me how it's going to drive differentiation versus your competition, how it's going to drive demand. That's, that's where brand is important. It's explaining your product it, easily to your consumer. It's differentiating yourself versus your competition. It's not about colors and fonts and Super Bowl ads.
I'll tell you, a lot of what we talked about today links back to that same thing, right? If you understand your strategy, who you're targeting, why you're targeting them, what they need, then a lot of the rest of that fruit just hangs off that, right? And it, so brand becomes important if it's going to add to all of those things. Uh, I think what we see a lot too with early stage companies coming through is when they do have a spare dollar, it all goes into digital market. Mm. Whether it's the right place or not, it just is, it's become the default place to yeah. put your dollars. You're buying so, crap. Correct. What are some of the key early stage ships you've got around demand generation through online advertising? Uh, things they should be looking at and tracking. Is there stuff they should be looking at? A lot of people put money in there. Doesn't mean they're yeah. tracking anything other than, oh, look, we got two leads. First, Google will tell you what keywords people are typing in. Doesn't matter how much you spend on a bid, you cannot make someone magically go over to their type, the computer and start typing in best accounting software. Like that doesn't happen. Like they have to already be there and searching for you to then show up in, in a search review. And they might not type in accounting software. They might type in invoice, how to invoice. They might type in best financial software or best software for a small business. There's lots of different terms and phrases they could use. Find out what people are actually searching, which will give you insights to uh, the messaging you should use that explains the value of your product to meet their need. Look at what your competitors are buying. Um, look where they show up in their sponsored ad results and look at their messaging. The other thing I would say is that if you are going to spend money on online advertising, whether it's search or digital ads or ads on social platforms, your landing pages in your website is incredibly important because you spend all this money to get them there. You better have a good value prop. You better have good, let's put it basically, you better have a good messaging on the page that convinces the person to take the next step, whether that next step is signing up for a free trial, whether that next step is calling sales, whether it's signing up for a demo, like you have to be convincing. And many times you have multiple people in the same industry promising the same thing. I'm going to save you time. I'm going to, I'm going to save you money. And so you need something that differentiates your company. Maybe it's your Captera reviews, your GT reviews, your own customer reviews. Maybe you got some third party that did a review on your product, case studies, the claims like you saying, hey, the average user of our product reduces the time required 30% a week. They save over 10 hours a week, or they reduce their cost of maintenance by 20%. And people start thinking, okay, now this thing pays for itself. There's data points to believe it. I don't, did you guys have Crest in, in Australia? Yeah. Okay. So like way back when, like, like everybody was brushing their teeth and everybody said the same thing. We, you don't get cavities if you use our product. But like when you walk up to the shelf, what do I buy? Everybody mm -hmm. says they prevent cavities. Crest went out and, and surveyed uh, dentists and eight out of 10 said, I prefer Crest. So they changed it to four out of five because that sounded better than eight out of 10, which is marketing. And they said four mm. out of five dentists mm. recommend Crest. And having that one claim that they could put into their advertising got them the leading market share. They became Genius. number one intact. And you are offering the same benefit that other people in your category are offering. You better give them something that says we're different. And claims is mm. a really good way to do that. Mm. Love that. Good action. Good actionable advice. Switching up a gear a little bit, Rob. So I'm running a company that's done reasonably well in ANZ. 
right? Like we've got to that $10 million mark. We've cracked the code here. But there's only yep. so many people here. You have to go to the big pond, which is always the North American market. What do I need to do in order to prepare for success when I get there on day one? I would say just because we speak the same language doesn't mean it's the same country, right? Just because it's the same industry doesn't mean people make decisions the same way. I'll give you an example from when I worked on QuickBooks. In the U.S., accountants would recommend a product, but they didn't to their small businesses, but they didn't feel comfortable selling it to the small business and making money off of it. They felt like they were actually like doing something unethical, that they're supposed to be this unbiased advisor. So they could recommend QuickBooks, but they didn't want to sell it and make money off the process. In Australia, accountants have a different point of view. They're like, I'm okay with reselling product. And Zero figured that out. And they went to the accountants and said, we have a better product. We have cleaner data from the banks and you can make a lot of money selling Zero." And so it sold like crazy. Zero brought that to the US and the accountants were like, what are you doing? Trying to bribe me? Back off. Don't bribe me. Show me you have a better product. Show me that you're my clients are going to actually be, be able to run their small business better. So you have to understand the, the market that you're going to, understand the decision-making process, understand the influencers. Even though the problem might be the same, the, what convinces them to buy, how they buy could be very different. I'll give you another example. Still in accounting software. So accountants play a big role in the U.S. and, and Australia. In Mexico, there's distributors, bars, and they have a huge role in, in the who, what accounting software gets bought. So there we go. Same product, three very different ways of selling it in three different countries. Mm. So it goes back to your original point, right? But in every country, you've got to do the same work. Okay, cool. Who is our customer? Why do they want to buy this thing? How do they do all that stuff? Who are the influencers? And it's a per country thing. You got to look at that all over again. That assumption, I think a huge amount of companies coming from Australia, New Zealand into the US, assumptions have probably done most of the damage. I assume I can do this. It worked here. I did that. So we'll do that sort of stuff. It definitely did damage. When I did it the first few times and we got it wrong and we're like, this definitely works. It didn't work. Yeah. So I think that's really good advice in, in terms of what people should be thinking about before they go there. What about partnerships, Rob? How much of a hand does that play in success? I think of partnerships in two ways. There's influencers, right? There's people who influence the decision of the end user, HVAC. I live in Texas. It's, it's, it's hotter than blue blades in here. Yeah, the sun. <laughs> and if you're air conditioning guys, the HVAC guy shows up or gal, and you're like, what should I do? And their recommendation is going to have a big impact on which hvac system you buy um so you better be out doing maybe you're doing a partnership if you sell hvac system you're going to some of the biggest hvac companies in the united states and there are some that are nationwide and you might do a partnership with them and they get special pricing and you help them market their company and therefore they push your brand harder right and that's because they're an influencer to the purchase decision at the end there's other partners that you can go to that it's in it's mutually beneficial. I sell payroll, but a lot of my customers are asking for 401k and I don't know how to do 401k. So I'm going to go partner with somebody else and we both win because our two products together are stronger and we make more money when we partner up and meet more needs, going back to customer needs. You're meeting more customer needs. Therefore, you're differentiating yourself versus your competition. You sell more product. 
So I think of partners as influencers, potentially additional channels, and then also a way to improve your value. Hey, I want to pick your brain on a couple of other marketing tactical items. Pricing is one, often for tech companies, right? And SaaS world. Should you have pricing on the website or should you stay clear of having it on the website? Especially if you're going to go into multi-regions and all these nuances. What's your advice there, Rob? I think it depends on your positioning in the marketplace. If you are the low-end disruptor, the value brand, are you the Toyota of your industry? You have a product that's almost as good, but it's at a way better price. Probably should show price, right? Like, why not? Because chances are they talked to somebody else or they've asked other people, other IT professionals, what did you pay for this? And and so that's going to help you stand out. Now, when you get into a place where you've got a stronger positioning in the marketplace, maybe your pricing is much more customized, then putting a price on the, the website could hurt you two ways. If it's too low and then they talk to your sales team, it feels like it was a bait and switch. You lied to me. I, I didn't want to just buy one module. I need five modules and therefore the price is five times as much. And then there's an implementation fee. You guys, that was misleading. Whereas you get them on the phone and you say, let me explain to you all the value of our product. Let me explain to you the process of how we come in and we customize it to your company and we set it up. Oh, there's a small implementation fee that goes along with that. But then they're going to be more okay with it because they feel like they're paying for something of value. Um, the And then sometimes it's just, it's such a complex software, like, Putting anything on the website is going to be confusing once they get on the phone with the salesperson. You're, you're, you're setting their expectation. You're pegging it someplace and, and they're always going to refer back to that. And it's a bad reference point. That all makes sense. Like, all this conversation, the one thing we haven't said, and I should have, is you have to have a test and learn mindset when it comes to your website, your landing pages, your messaging, your mm. prices. If you're debating it, take 10% of your traffic and show price. And see what happens. Do you get more leads? Do you get less leads? Do you get less leads where they convert at a higher rate? Like, that's the great thing about technology is that you can mm. test and learn. Now, you don't want to get paralyzed that you test every single decision that I have seen. Right? And you only have so much traffic on your website. But for big strategy questions or things that can move the needle a lot where you can't just do it off of judgment, then test it. Mm. Yeah, so you're not suggesting to break it into 10 lots of 10% and test 10 different things at the same time. Yeah, no. <laughs> All at I once. I worked out a business that, yeah, I had to take 50% of the traffic for two weeks to get to statistical significance, right? If you ran a test that was a negative 10% test, you're taking the business down 5%. So yeah. don't do that. Yeah. In that situation, could we go test it on click? And I know it won't be statistically significant, but if it's really bad, we'll probably know. And then you can figure out what you're going to test on the, on the main webpage that gets most of the traffic. Or should we do a survey? Because, man, gambling half of our P&L for two weeks makes me really nervous. Test, testing mindset is awesome. Just don't be dumb about it, right? And don't take your business backwards because you're testing everything you do. There are other ways you can, yeah. The gut still comes into stuff. If you test it on something that maybe is not statistically relevant, but it gives you an idea, hey, gee, we did this and half of it's come through and it's good, then that gives you some reason to, to take that next step rather than just throw the dice in and hope it goes well. Yes. The great thing about technology and the internet is you can measure everything. You know the crappy thing is? You can measure everything. 
Yeah. And so you can get into analysis paralysis. You can get into mm. data just frozen because you have to have a perfect answer. You don't always need a perfect answer. Data should always be added to judgment and business acumen. Mm. And then you point. That's a good snip for later. That's a, <laughs> it's coming. Rob, is there a marketing channel that just works, but is underutilized? If you're in a bigger industry, events works, but I think a lot of people do them wrong. Um, Can you elaborate? Just because you put up a booth and you have something on a repeating loop and you scan people's name tags, that's not going to do much for you. If you're there and you have a salesperson and a product person who can go deeper and you're finding decision makers and you're getting high quality leads that you can then hand off your sales team and they're following up within the next day after the event. And you're at the right events, by the way, that have a lot of your target customer there. That can be a really low cost way to find a lot of good leads. And they, if you're doing the right work at the booth, those are hot leads that you're handing off to your sales team. They're not more, they're hot. Yeah. But if you run over, just go around and scan a bunch of names, you might as well have just bought the list of attendees at the event. Yes. I know you have. Bought the list? <laughs> might as well. Eh? <laughs> I've, um, seen the good the, I've seen the good end of that. I've seen the good ones where yeah, people yeah. are really working and you get into Sysmax and you're picking up six or seven or eight sales out of that thing and you look at the mm. cost and now it's holy shit, we made a lot of money. And I've been to plenty myself where I've been sitting on even pre technology days when I was a lawyer doing it, where I'd stand at booths all day and honest to God, we're basically just having a billing day off. Yep. I've done both sides of the coin. Yeah. Again, don't do that. Coming back to your ride, Rob, you obviously had a very successful and rewarding career. You went to being a CMO of Intuit and then you switched up the gear. You went into go-to-market advisory type of board level roles. What prompted that for you? A couple of things. I... I was fortunate in my career that I started in purchasing, like operations. Then I went into marketing. Then I moved into product management. I was a general manager, all the functions. And then ultimately, I was the chief sales officer running sales for the company. Not many people get to move around and do those other functions, right? The other side is not many people want to do that. You have to have a mindset of lifelong learning. And any opportunity to take on something new and different, although it's going to be hard, is an opportunity to learn and make yourself, your skill set stronger. So I did that and it helped me be successful in my career, but it was also really hard. So mm. I was at a point where I had achieved a lot in my career, but I wanted to spend more time with my family, quite honestly. And so I was like, hey, where's a way that I can continue to be challenged mentally? I can actually pass along some of the things that I've learned, the skill sets that I have and the experiences and help some other people maybe miss some potholes that I stepped into. And so that's why I made the decision transition over to board work. The other part of that is, is I get to learn like three new industries because yeah, your company's different. They're different industries. And so it's another way for me to keep my learning journey going versus just going to a bigger company in the same industry. Hey, but anyone... No, no answer, Sorry. mate. I got multiple kids. That's uh, they're young enough they don't remember that you're working a lot. Yeah, they remember now. Trust me. <laughs> hey, Rob. Anyone thinking of making the switch 
What are some of the things they need to be looking out for? When you go from an operator to an advisory role, it may sound easier than one may think, right? You're on the sidelines, you're on the other side of the fence. It's hard. Yeah. What did you find so hard about it? I was used to, I was in charge or or at least my, for my group, I was in charge and even my cross-functional counterparts, we worked together. And so they had to at least listen to my point of view, even if they disagree. And when you saw things that were broken, you either could make it a priority for your team or you could just go in and try to fix it yourself. Mm -hmm. As a board member, they don't have to do what you tell them. You're an, you're an advisor. And the first thing I learned was, is you better get to know their business well enough that you're actually speaking from a position of an educated point of view as walking in and being there. You saw that if a new CEO walked into your company, uh, a new president, head of sales came in and two weeks after getting into the job, they started changing everything and telling you what, what needed to be changed in the company. You'd be like, what are you doing? Don't even know our business yet. One, you got to learn the business. Um, the second thing is, is you have to realize that they don't work for you. And so you're, you have to convince them. You have to sh- show them that there's value you can add from your background and experience. I think the biggest learning I had was is I, I almost overcorrected to I'm a coach and advisor. Um, and sometimes I didn't push my point of view hard enough early on. And so uh, over time, as I got more confident and more familiar with the role, I realized that it's easy for companies to stay in their path, the momentum mm-hmm. is strong. And so to get them to change course takes a little bit more of a, a stronger point of view. And sometimes a good, what do you guys call it? A dust up? A good debate. Yeah. Like debated out. Now you can't do that until you know their business and you have a good relationship, but then have at it. And at the end of the day, you'll get to a better decision. And I guess look, I'm going to ask you the question, what makes a good board member? Right. What what makes a good board member, especially an independent board member? You don't get to choose a bunch of them, but for an independent, what makes a good independent board member? Yeah. Somebody who learns you're in, takes the time to learn your business, your industry. Someone who realizes that they actually are in the middle of the PE firm or the VC or the public market, if you're public, right? You're in the yep. middle of the PE and the company. You have to be an advocate for both. So if I work for a private equity company, I need to be an advocate of, hey, they invested in you. They, you need to have decent growth. You can't waste your money. Your OPEX can't be going to negative. On the flip side, I have to be an advocate for the company too. Hey, I know their business enough. I've sat down. I've had the conversation with the CEO and the head of sales. They want to go hire 20% more salespeople and put this into marketing. I believe in them and I advocate for them that I think they should go do it. So you're actually helping them get decisions made versus just sitting on the sidelines and poking at their P&L and their business results. You want to do that, go be a PE partner, right? go work for a private equity company. If you want to get involved and actually help them be successful and help them make decisions faster, then that's where a board member is. The last thing I'd say is, and I didn't realize this either when I first started, is there is a fair amount of executive coaching as a board member. Because a lot of the people that you're working with don't have as much experience as you. And they're trying to figure out how to run a business, how to coach their team, how to um, build processes and dashboards and they're balancing their work and their family. And, and so you're, you're an executive coach. You're not just there to give them advice about how to do better marketing or sales or product. You're also helping them be a better executive. And look, I've always, one, one was always, you got to build trust, which I think you said, build industry, build relationship. You build trust with someone, then you can have any conversation you want. That was something you always really good at, right? Build trust. 
then you can go, hey, Sean, like you suck at doing all of this stuff. And if you don't fix it, we've got a problem. But you can have that discussion because you've got that, you've got that ability to, to have that. And instead of it just being a pushback, you're like, oh, okay, cool. I can, I've got trust with you. So I can say I disagree, but you can have the conversation. And I think if you're going to pay money to have independent board members, if you can't have rough conversations or at least have conversations, then you're spending money for no reason. Yeah. It has to be about uncomfortable conversations. If you're not having uncomfortable yeah. conversations, they are doing their job. And you're getting nothing out of it. In return, you get nothing out of it. If everything is just, yeah, it's great. And oh, look, we've turned a few fingers at this and maybe you should think about this and anyway, I've done and I'm off. Then you actually can get anything for your money, right? Nothing's changed. Nothing moves forward. You get no momentum growth. Yeah. Board members aren't cheap. Look, I remember. I remember. <laughs> no, I can vouch for that though, because your philosophy was it's more of a human project, Rob. You worked with individuals and got to know them and got to know more about them and what made them tick. You also then had those hard conversations when, when the time was right. But it wasn't just about hit you with a hammer every day about metrics or anything like that. You cared about the individual. Like I said, if you're just going to pick up the numbers, like you, any consultant can do that. That's it. Exactly. That's it. Hey, last one, before we get into the harder questions, the quick fire round, that's where the magic happens. But... Yeah. Uh, going back to the early stage, board makeup is hugely important and you have to be somewhat intentional about it, right? If I'm a $10 million ARR business, I'm the CEO of the business, what should I think of the board makeup? Like how intentional should I be in the diversification and the makeup of the board? I'll go back to what I said earlier. You start with your vision and your strategy. If you're clear on your vision and your strategy, then I think the next question is what skill set or experience do you need to deliver that strategy that you don't have much of on your team? It might be product, mm -hmm. it might be operations, it might be finance, it could be marketing and sales, any of those things, right? And if you're like, you know what, we finally built a great product, our net promoter scores are good, or I think this is going to be a PLG product like growth, I need amazing marketing and man, my team's pretty junior or we just never invested in it because we were so focused on the product. Go find yourself a board mm -hmm. member who, who knows go to market really well and who's been through that curve of 10 million to mm -hmm. 50 million. On the flip side, if you're like, I, I've got this great business and we did a bunch of M&A and yeah. now I got five tech stacks and I'm spending 50% of my product development resources on just tech refresh and painting and I need to rationalize my tech stacks. You might need to go find yourself a product person on your board who's yeah. been through that and has done it in a way that didn't piss off the end users and cause a bunch of Love. tips. I know yes, that huh? easy stuff is out of the way. Let's get to the quick fire out, Rob. These are all favorite questions. You can't have plural answer. You got to pick one. So favorite sports team? Any, any, any sport. sports. Any sports. College football to professional, oh, I got, I got, junior, got, got, you got, name it. University of Michigan Wolverines. I graduated from the University of and the rated number yeah, two. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Did they really? Go blue. Go blue. Favorite music genre? I live in Texas. I listen to country. What can I say? I just, <laughs> You've got to I, say I, it. Pick up a track and listen. That's uh, fair enough. Favorite movie of all time? Shawshank Redemption. Everything about he is a horror writer. The guy who's wrote some of the best books that turned into some of the best movies. Like Stand By yeah. Me and Green Mile. Like that guy, he just writes good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Shot he knows what to do. Like it. Awesome. It's tough there for me. Favorite place to visit? Let's say Sydney, but I never came to visit you guys. Um, I don't know. 
I mean, Bristol. I was there last week. Wine country. Uh, wine country in California. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, then, we really, then we really should bring you out to Australia so we can take you to proper wine countries. That's it. Or New Zealand. I'll give Richard some credit. Either or. Yeah. I'd give, the, I'd give the something I'm like from New Zealand. I'm like, men. Exactly. You're welcome anytime, Rob. You know this. And this is what the whole podcast is designed for, right? This is the main question. Peanut butter. How do you like yours? Yes. Crunchy or smooth? And this one or actually smooth? has a right answer and a wrong answer. And that's a wrong answer. <laughs> I don't want to be pulling out the flock after I have myself a sandwich. Give me some. <laughs> Why have peanut butter if you don't actually want peanut? If you just want some sort of gelatinous spread, you might as well have freaking Vegemite. Uh, When's the last time you saw the name Johnson? You just made editing that much harder for us, Rob, but we'll, we'll, we'll get it right. We'll get it right for you yeah. on your behalf. Um, there's, a, there's quite a few people right now that when they speak, it's an Australian-sounding guy who goes, <laughs> crunchy, and then it says peanut butter. Hey, thanks for all your insights, Rob. Thanks for coming on. It's been fun. No, I enjoyed thanks, it. Thanks for giving me the opportunity, guys. I miss working with you. Yeah, we do too.